If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Patrice, I'm Marleya. Hi, Courtney. She just ran. She just ran away. I'm sorry. I'm here. Hi, guys. I love this drink, but I keep on eating giant globs of basil. Well, uh, uh, that one wasn't muddled as well as. Oh, actually, I'm just discovering I really like giant globs of basil. Okay. Oh, I could chew on these all day. I think they're better than mint. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's a basil mojito with the sugar basil rim. I didn't know what I was making when I made that. I didn't know that's what I was making it for. So sugar and basil on the edge with rum, fresh squeezed lime juice, and muddled basil leaves from my garden. Delicious. It is delicious. I love it. I like it too. How are you, Patrice? I'm fine. Doing good. You just turned on your laptop or something because it looked like the light of God just shone on your face. I, it did. I, <laughs> I opened up my browser, which is all white. It's just like, ah. It's like the suitcase in Pulp Fiction. You open it up. <laughs> which, what's in the suitcase? A bright light. Whatever <laughs> you want it to be. It's the question of a generation. Right. Well, yay. I have some stuff cool because i really don't cool i I traveled that's very big news really for me it's huge first time Mm -hmm. in six months that i got in my car and left jacksonville and drove did you manage to hold it the whole time no i actually stopped in birmingham and (laughs) met my dad at my brother's house and i went to the restroom at his house in birmingham and then we left and made it the other two hours into Mississippi. And that was very doable. And the only thing, I mean, we only had to like slow down to go through the toll booth, which is all like credit card now. So you don't really even have to talk to anybody. And yeah, made it all the way on a tank of gas easily and almost could have made it back on the same tank of gas. But I did stop by the gas station and Starkville and filled up, which again, Starkville is like pretty bad right now. They had like to be such a Octobaha County to be rural Mississippi where they have like in Octobaha, they have like Starkville is it. That's like their one main town. And there was like, there's been 55 deaths, I think so far. Oh my God. And they've had like maybe 500 cases or more. Maybe it's more than that. It it was just like really high number right now. And of course I go to the gas station and nobody's wearing a mask. And I'm sitting there like in gloves with mask, you know, because nobody's taking it serious, but that's okay. Uh, One thing... (laughs) that's okay everything's fine everything's fine fine. i'm fine (laughs) the cool thing about starfield though is they have they don't even have to like go pick up their groceries so they have like full-on delivery grocery delivery service there nice so you don't even have to leave your house unless you want to go get liquor then you have to mask up and go you know 
to the store where everybody else is not wearing a mask. But so that's the state of Starkville right now. It was a good trip. Luckily, no problems. Traffic was fucking heavy as shit for a huh. Tuesday morning. It's, it was ridiculous, like how much traffic was on the road Tuesday and Friday coming back. But made it back, no incidences, none of the like. I could just, I was just imagining myself. I'm always like worst case scenario. I am the pessimist of the group. If y'all have not figured it out <laughs> after 66 episodes, hey, 66 I, episodes, I am the pessimist. And so I was just having like anxiety about tires blowing, engines failing, oh no, and just having to, you know, deal with that along with my son who was in the car with me at the same time. And, but we made it back and now we're quarantining in order to go see my in-laws in a couple of weeks. And they live in Tupelo, Mississippi, which I just read Tupelo, Mississippi's mayor is kicking ass and yeah. is requiring everybody who is out in public to wear a mask regardless. Yes. He is tired. It's not that hard. He's tired of everybody's shit. He's like, it is not that hard. Doctors and nurses and dentists and many other workers, painters even. I mean, lots of people do it all the time. Every day, right? All the so, time. All the time. And they so. are not dropping dead from carbon not dioxide. <laughs> they're not read about that. I was like, give me a fucking break. That is the worst. We would never have any doctors left. Right. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Well, Mississippi's like on it because they right? just, even in a Sunday vote, like 30 minutes before we started recording not this, the they press. approved removing the Confederate symbol off of their flag. Yes. So look at you for your All right, mistake. Mississippi. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to go. Cheers. Good stuff. Cheers. What do you think the old Miss fans and such are going to think about it? You're going to have some same as here, I know. Well, we'll ask Noel. Yeah, yeah. Well, we they've already, they've are, I mean, it's, I don't think it's that big of a surprise for them because they got rid of their mascot, which mm -hmm. was the yeah. colonel or the general or whatever. The rebel rebel yes the ribs so you know they've already changed their mascot so didn't like, they turn it into a bear mm -hmm. like or a did they just bear. talk about turning it into a bear ah. it's either a shark or a black bear i'm gonna like, have to look that up it's a bear a shark? it's a bear it's a okay yeah. <laughs> a land shark no. i think there was talk about it being a shark i think it should be a shark now i want it to be a shark Oh, we're gonna have Noel on us now for sure. <laughs> Land shark. Oh, well, because MSU was all like in support of the flag change, right? They were up there saying like, "Our football team ain't gonna play this way." Like they were, right? They were pulling I, out I think stops. even the president, like in 2016, they had like made a push to try to change the flag. Well done, Mississippi. Done, done and done. <laughs> now, if you could just change all the really important things that should be changed in the state oh lord but i guess baby it's, steps. it's gotta, yeah gotta start somewhere baby steps in spite of the fact that we're all so far behind we're um far behind we're far behind now. well let's see i thought i had some other stuff like stuff that i fucked up last episode that i wanted to <laughs> clear up 
Because anything. Well, first one, and I'm surprised we didn't get anybody else saying anything about this. But Courtney told me this like immediately <laughs> after we finished recording. She's like, "Gone with the Wind" was not in 1959, and I'm like, "I know." And she's like, "But you said that it was in 1959. You said it premiered in 1959. I didn't it premiered it in 1939." <laughs> um, I think you said 1959. Yeah, she was not that aggressive, but it was funny because she was like, she knew like right off that she was like, "Uh, uh-uh, no, that's not right." <laughs> <laughs> and I know she's not the only one. So Gone with the Wind premiere was 1939, not 1959. <laughs> I think I just like typed a, the wrong like number. Yeah. Mm. And I mispronounced Hanna-Barbera, which is, a, <laughs> which is interesting because all my life, I always called it Hanna-Barbera. And just in like, I don't know, like it was probably after my kids were born, my, my mom started saying Hanna-Barbera and I was like, oh, why have I always said it Barbera? I guess it was probably just Barbara. And but, I, I was incorrect. It is Hanna-Barbera. Yeah, it is Hanna-Barbera. Yes. Yeah. So Hanna-Barbera. Was, that's the way I know Hanna-Barbera. <laughs> Santa Barbara. Uh, Let's see. I had, oh, other updates. I've been writing down shit all week, just in case you can't tell. I've got like, that's really funny. I've got a bunch of stuff. So my husband listened to our episode and then sent me a link to a an episode of Ono, Ross, and Carrie, the podcast oh, yeah. that they did, the Alamos, the Alamos. Oh, yes. And so we can link to that if you want. It's, but Ono, Ross, and Carrie is fun, and they covered the Alamo cult. So just so you know, if you want more of that. Cool. So we talked about the banana splits in our, like, Sid and Marty Croft yeah. section. Mm-hmm. And our friend Jeff Hall, who runs Parental Advisory Movie on <laughs> movie podcast sent me a video link of the banana splits horror movie that was released last year in which like the costumed characters from the banana the actual costumed characters from the banana splits run around like serial killing everybody (laughs) it's kind of like like what you already imagined should have happened anyway exactly you know all of us who hated Chuck E. Cheese as kids this is all of our nightmares come true but he if if you want to know any more about that he covered it in his 10th episode it was it was last fall I think that he did that one we can put a link yeah we can put a link and I may want to do a watch party of that at some point because I can't help myself like it looks perfect it looks perfect to me (laughs) I feel like I have to like bolt down my laptop so I won't sling it across the room. Oh, Something I know. scares me. Patrice is just like slam it shut when someone scares her. <laughs> like, holy shit, where'd you go? She's like, I got offline because I shut my laptop really hard. <laughs> really hard. <laughs> We need to give her something to just throw. You need like a cloth to throw over your computer. Right. Yes. And then you won't yeah. have to go away and log back in. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's a good, a I like shield. that idea. A I need curtain. a shield. Yep. You need a, it's just like a the slam box. box. <laughs> <laughs> I just I need a window that. shield just to slam. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> no. No. Let's see. I also have from that story, Disney has just announced that they are changing Smash... Spl- I always call it Smash Mountain. It's not what? Smash Mountain. <laughs> it's Splash Mountain. 
into a princess and the frog theme yeah and that's a long time coming too so that was something we talked about in that last episode so that was good and i guess the last thing i have of my pre-show notes is a thank you to ruth because she was on the fan page the other night and said hey if anybody wants a good thing to watch at night try the living in the dead which is on amazon prime and I was like, hey, I did just happen to sit down with nothing on my mind for what I was going to watch. So let's do that. Thank you very much. Don't mind if I do. And I really liked it. So it's like a BBC, like six, six episode series. And it's a period ghosty yeah. thing. It's like a period Ooh. ghosty drama. I, I like totally it. love that. Yeah. So, I love period pieces. Good deal. That is the stuff. Yes. You're so much more on it than me. Oh You've my been God, vacationing. Are you <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I hope you felt like you were vacationing while you were vacationing. You I know out, sometimes family time isn't always there? that vacation. Well, my brother has a pool at this house that we were staying out. So me and my son, we were out at the swimming pool every single day. But then it rained a lot. Like it rained. Oh, a that's lot. right. It did rain on you. But we did get out like a little bit every day. So that was nice. We really enjoyed it. And it was nice to see people and to eat with other people and stuff like that again so then the kids they were so ecstatic to see each other oh my gosh it was really great it was really great great so we were thankful for that and trying to trying to visit i guess families before this fall because there's no telling what's going to happen when school starts yeah it's all going to open up that's what yeah so trying to take advantage of that take advantage of the time we have off and before it gets too much crazier with all the stuff expanding and getting worse so no i can't that's been keeping me down i've been researching a lot on reopening protocols i'm nervous about the fall semester i'm nervous about the orientation coming up i'm getting Mm. sucked into that but i I'm dedicating just a little bit of time to doing some research, putting some links, getting them together in the same document. So I have them to refer back to instead of having it all jumbled in my head. Right. So that, so that I can keep them in a place and feel like I did something. That's smart. And then move forward because, you know, I can't change it all in one day, but I do want to have that for when I want to speak to anybody in administration or anybody above me and say, Hey, wait a minute. Have you read this from? Right. The Journal of Higher Ed or Chronicle of Higher Ed or the legislation that's going through. All right. Or the mayor Tupelo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just trying to do that. But I had one positive for me this week that from being on social media that I did see was the new, the, the chicks, the Dixie chicks changed their name, which they've oh, always, yeah. they've always walked the walk. Like they talk the talk and they walk the walk in my opinion with their activism. So mm-hmm. Uh, they did take the name change to the chicks and their new song their new video i've watched it many times and if you haven't yet march march it is amazing and i say the song is amazing it's a protest song and uh, it's it's very powerful i cried the first time i watched it like in a feeling of like the movement overall Mm so right i'd recommend it if you haven't listened to it or watched the video yeah it's really good i agree Excellent. You know, we may also, I know that we all donated money to help the, get the Freedom Bus, Freedom Freedom Riders, Freedom Riders Riders Park going. We may want to add a link to that just in our area. If anybody wants to throw some money, we're trying to get 
this park that they've been working on for a while. I don't know the really the history behind it, but have not have they not been trying to get this park open for a really long time? There are a couple of different iterations that it's taken. So this is <clears throat> for those of you who aren't around here. This is in Anniston, Alabama, and there was a bus burning in Anniston. There were um, Freedom Riders who came down from the the northern states to to come down here and support civil rights movements and one of the buses was stopped by locals and basically firebombed and you know there were a lot of people injured i don't remember if there were deaths from that but they were basically also saying like we'll beat the shit out of you if you come out of the bus we're gonna light it on fire and we'll beat you when you get out here Right. So it was, it's a dirty, it's a, it's a dirty history, but mm. it's really good that it's something that people want to remember in the right kind of ways. Like, uh, you know, not to just pretend like it didn't happen. Anyway, so right. they, they have had a space in, in Anniston for a while for a museum for it, but I think there have been a lot of delays. There's been some funding issues, I'm sure. Um, and I know that they're looking at making issues. Yes. Well, because the, besides the place in Aniston, the, the actual spot where the bus was burned has had a sign put up on it multiple times. And at least two of the times the sign's been put up, people have gone and burned the sign down or, you know, like spray painted it. And so, right. you know, <laughs> people just clearly, being shitty. Yeah. yeah, clearly these issues are not over. No. And anyway, so yeah, we can totally put a link to that fundraiser out there or, or some information about the museum, you know. Right. <clears throat> right. Okay. Cool. That's all, that's all I have really to speak on, speak about. This wonderful drink that I'm drinking and y'all are the best friends ever. And Marleya like made this amazing Paula Dean. Oh yeah. I have a cobbler. cobbler. I haven't dug into mine yet. Cobbler. Yeah, that's next. Yes. After this drink, it'll definitely be peach cobbler shoving in FaceTime. Well, did you I go guess see the Peach then, Man? Where did you get them? Did you go to the square and get some? My good shit? friend Sally is moving, and she she sent us a whole bunch of the contents of her fridge and freezer and counter because she's mm. like, I can't do anything with this, and she had five peaches left over from probably the Peach Man, and and so I was just like, well, this is the perfect amount, so that's what we did with them. Cool. Peach Man, he's he's a local man who sells on our our, our town square from Chilton County. Chilton mm-hmm. County Peaches, famous yep. in Alabama. And they're tasty. You don't know. Yeah, they're good. Well, Patrice, I think you're first today. Am I first? Okay. Is this episode 66? I said episode 66 earlier, but I wasn't really sure. It's really a damn good question. Hold on. I have my iTunes right here. I can tell. I mean, <laughs> uh, our podcast, whatever. <clears throat> our last episode was, was it? Yes, it's 66. Okay. The water nice. walkers and remember the Alamos. 65. <laughs> Alamos. Alamos. <laughs> Alamos. All right. So while I was on my mini vacation this past week, my husband was by himself keeping the dog. And we like my he's been playing the one of the video games that my uh, son's been playing on his uh, what is the little switch thing? The Nintendo little switch thing. Yeah. So my son wanted to take the switch with us and my husband was like really sad. Cause he's like, no, what am I going to do? 
he's like, I'm going to have to work now. So, which is good because he, he, he's been doing some album cover work and that's been good. But he texted me and he's like, okay, so since I can't play the switch, I've started watching this show and I hate you because this is totally a show that you would watch and make <laughs> me watch. And I'm like, okay, what is it? He's called, he says, it's called the boonies. And I'm like, okay. He's like, it's on Hulu. I was like, first of all, that sounds like a name of a show that I would totally watch. Yeah. Because I am not the housewives of what fucking ever. I can't stand those shows. <laughs> but I housewives can sit of what fucking ever. and watch some boonies, some gator man, some swamp people, like yeah. anything <laughs> that has people with no teeth. I'm there. <laughs> I'm watching. <laughs> so he started wa- watching this and he's texting me like throughout the week telling me about it. and he's like we're just gonna watch this when you get back and I'm like okay whatever and so last night I should say yesterday afternoon we started it up and it did not disappoint <laughs> and seriously by one o'clock last night I, I had to say okay I've got to stop I've got, oh my God. I've got to go to bed okay <laughs> I, I've got to stop but there's this one character, and it's funny because all of these characters on this show, I think, I feel like I could be related to them. And I think that's why it fascinates me so much because it's seriously, I have, like, The Boonies is about people living off the grid. And hmm. I have tendencies in my family to be hermits and (laughs) people that could easily live in caves and (laughs) that is really what one of the people on the show I can't say that he's the most fascinating one out of the three or four that they cover because they're all equally have their own uniqueness but his name is Joe Ray and he lives in the caves in north central Arkansas so I'm back in Arkansas with my stories here. <laughs> so there's somebody up there that he knows has about 200 acres in North Central Arkansas in the Ozarks where there's so many caves. It's like it's just huge cave systems. There's been like a lot of mining up there in the past. And they basically let him live on that land and keep people like off their property and then he can do whatever he wants and whatever he wants is basically living in the cave systems there. And there's like hundreds of caves on this property. And so he lives below ground. He started doing this, I think maybe like 10 years ago, his wife died maybe 10 years ago. She had Alzheimer's for like 15 years. And so if you've ever been around somebody who's had Alzheimer's, You know, there's like two different kinds. It's like the really the short, the quick kind that on set that comes very quickly. And and then there's the prolonged kind. And the prolonged kind is just horrific because it just really, it lasts for so long. And for 15 years, it's like a extremely long time to take care of somebody with Alzheimer's. But his wife eventually died. And then he moved, he basically lives off the land exploring these caves and he goes through and he gets like he'll find like different minerals and stuff that he can sell that he'll buy like ammunition for his rifles or oil for his lamps because he'll you know being in Arkansas they have like razorback hogs and so they'll you know 
he'll shoot the hogs or the deer or whatever and they'll eat that way so truly living off the land this way so how old how old is this guy i would say probably 65 60 65 and he i mean he still he slithers i mean he goes through like these really small holes in the cave and he's not a small guy it's like lucky yeah and he's he just belongs so he like he he'll jump down but he's like wearing this like really huge wife beater shirt and like these old crappy shorts and sandals and he does everything he hunts that way he goes spelunking that way he goes cave diving that way but it was like it's really interesting and sad and crazy so I started talking about this I was, when I was thinking of a story. I was like, I've got to find something for a story this week. And Chad was like, How about <laughs> cave people? I was like, okay. And so, you know, and, and we've people. had like, we've been to the DeSoto Caverns and they talked about mm-hmm. how, you know, it used to be a speakeasy and they used to have parties and bandits used to live in there. And of course, the indigenous people, the Native Americans used to, you know, use them for all, all different kinds of things like, you know, burials and and whatnot. And so, so I was like, okay, there's got to be cave people now. We've got to figure out who these cave people are. There's got to be some crazy cave people going on. <laughs> there's got to be a crazy story. And lo and behold, I found my crazy cave story. And it has nothing to do with Joe Ray. <laughs> I love, I can totally feel the way that you did this. Cause that's, that's, that's so many times the way that I do stories. I'm like, this has to exist somewhere. I just have to find the right search term. Yeah, you just have to find that little bit of thread that just unravels everything. And that's what I did. I found a little bit of thread. So I want to talk about this guy named Richard Sharp Shaver. He was born in 1907. And I think he may have been born up north, like Michigan. And he... After World War II, he went and worked in a factory. Actually, let me see. This is before World War II. He actually worked in a factory um, in his 20s. And when he was around like 25 years old, he noticed something weird started to happen. So he noticed that one of the welding guns in his job had like some sort of, and it says this, by some freak of its coils, field attunements is how they describe it but basically it was having something to do with his welding gun that was allowing him to hear the thoughts of the men working around him okay yeah okay just bear with me (laughs) of course this freaked him out and he thought that he was receiving telepathic records of torture sessions conducted by a malign entity in caverns deep within the earth oh my god so 25 <laughs> yes he's starting to lose it it's so sounding he, like a yeah yeah, now. yeah we'll talk about that so he quit his job and he became a hobo for a while and he was hospitalized briefly a couple of years after that 1934 and then he disappeared and nobody knew where he was until about the 1940s and while some have said that he spent eight years like in the caves during that time. One of the people close to him later on said that more than likely he spent about eight years in a mental institution. 
Oh, wow. That's but anyway, when he, let's see, in the 40s, early 40s, he claimed that he had discovered an ancient language that he called Mantong, which is a proto-human language, like a prehistoric uh, human language. And it was the source of all earthly languages. And in Mantong, each sound has like a hidden meaning and you apply this formula to any word in any language and you could start to decode a secret meaning to any word name or phrase. So this was like 1943 where he started like writing about this and in the early 40s so 40 when was the end of World War II? 45 I think. Okay. So he started, he started talking about this language about this time. Then after the war, you know, we got into the atomic era and it was all about the bombs and everything like that. So sci-fi became like a really huge thing. And there was this magazine called Amazing Stories. And it was a sci-fi magazine. And if you look at the covers of this magazine, they're pretty epic and oh they really are they really are so at this time ray palmer was the editor of amazing stories and so shaver wrote this really long letter like ten thousand word document called a warning to future man and sent it to palmer and you know he was telling palmer about this language that you know, he had discovered, you know, the Montauk and all, all this other stuff. And uh, he also wrote of an extremely advanced prehistoric race who had built cavern cities inside the earth before abandoning the earth for another planet due to the damaging radiations from the sun. And in this letter, he's also telling this editor of the sci-fi magazine that when they left, they abandoned some of their offspring here and there there was two different kind of sects of the offspring so the minority was like a noble noble human like race called the toro taro sorry taro but the majority of the offsprings that were left behind degenerated over time and became mentally impaired sadist known as the Dero. Okay. And so Dero was short for detrimental robots. So he's calling them <laughs> robots, but okay. not in the sense that they're mechanical, more in the sense that they were robotic-like and they were savage in behavior. Um, is how he was, you know, referring to these robots. So continuing on in this manifest, basically, that he sent this editor, he was saying that they, the Duro would kidnap surface dwelling people by the thousands for meat and torture. Oh my God. And that they still lived in cave cities and that they had sophisticated ray machinery that the uh, great giant races had left behind to spy on people and projected tormenting thoughts and voices into their minds. And Duro's also could be blamed for all of the misfortunes that people suffered from, all accidental injuries, airplane crashes, catastrophes. They're gremlins. Yeah, natural (laughs) disasters. We're totally going to blame the Duros for 2020, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Duro all over 2020 here. (laughs) 
so in this writing as well, Schaefer talks about women were, Uh-oh. of course, especially singled out for brutal, brutal treatment. Here it comes. Yep, they were <laughs> yeah. raped, and there was a lot of sadomasochism going on. It was like a prominent theme in Schaefer's writings here. Also, the Doro sometimes traveled with spaceships or rockets and had dealings with equally evil extraterrestrial beings. So Schaefer claimed he had all of this firsthand knowledge about the Duros and their, and their caves. And, you know, he presented this huge letter as truth to this editor to this, of the sci-fi magazine. And, of course, the editor of the sci-fi magazine was like gold. So <laughs> yeah. what they, he ended up doing is he edited the letter and the stories and gave it plots because it was, he said, without a plot, it really was just ramblings, right? So he actually went in, did some light editing, rewrote the manuscript, and it served as like a series uh, that, uh, series of stories that were in the amazing magazine editions called I Remember Lemuria, is what he called it. Hmm. So, so which instantly, like everybody became well, most people became like really intrigued, it boosted their, their publishing of it, their, what is it? Circulation. What is it? Circulation. Circulation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It, they sold more of the magazine because of Schaefer's stories here. This is the magazine that published Carl Tansler's story too. Yeah. I mean, they, I I just think the editors of this must've been some super special people. Mm, (laughs) We will talk about that later because (laughs) I'm going to hit on some specialness here of them. (laughs) So, you know, as soon as the stories were published, they had people writing in attesting to the truth of Shaver's claims in like tens of thousands of letters, according to this editor, (laughs) that heard strange voices and encountered denizens of the hollowed earth. Oh, wow. And there was even a woman who wrote in who claimed to have gone to a deep sub-basement of a Paris, France building via an escalator, a secret, not escalator, but an elevator. And after months of being raped and tortured, was freed by a benevolent Tiro, which was the good beings that were left here by, by the things. Okay. So another letter came in claiming involvement with the Darrows from Fred Chrisman, who I didn't really know anything about, but apparently he gained notoriety for his role in the Murray Island incident and the JFK assassination. Oh. So the Murray Island incident was basically, I think one of, I don't know if it was one of the first UF, well, it wasn't the first because, you know, Thomas Jefferson or, or whatever. <laughs> but it was like an early UFO hoax that, that he had witnessed. And somebody actually did a TV series based off of this guy's life. He was obviously somebody that was like deep in conspiracy theories and UFO stuff. But he wrote in a letter talking about, oh, yeah, this stuff. Yeah. You know, Middle Earthers, Inner Earthers, whatever they call them, people. And and that he had battled mysterious and evil underground creatures himself in a cave in Burma in World War II. So 
after, you know, after all these letters started coming in, then Shaver Mystery Club Society started forming in several cities, and it actually got mentioned in 1951 in an issue of Life magazine. <laughs> so all of this, oh crap, I just lost my place. Life magazine. So all of this obviously increased the sales of the magazine, mm-hmm. and they like had a really nice run, but more of these sci-fi hardcore fans felt compelled to condemn Shaver for, you know, his stories because they were really used to more technical sci-fi, hardcore sci-fi outer space and not so much these, they called them slapdash space operas, more of like this Mm. male fantasy space opera thing that Shaver was writing about. So, they started getting, the magazine started getting letters complaining about it, saying that you need to stop publishing this, go back to publishing, you know, more of the traditional sci-fi. And critics were also quick to point out that the author was suffering from several of the classic symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. Yep. And, and that the recounting of personal experiences and all of this of the people, the kind of people that would write in were also the kind of people who were claimed they were being persecuted by invisible voices or their neighbor's dog, Mm -hmm. um, which is what the sound of Sam, son of Sam claimed that he heard, you know, the dog next door told him to kill people. So shortly, like, I think maybe like a few years, four or five years, the magazine decided to stop publishing the stories. And Palmer claimed it was because of pressure by sinister outside forces to make the change. The people that wrote letters claimed it was them sending their letters and boycotting the magazine made the change. But the magazine owners basically said that the Schaefer mysteries simply had run its course and that the sales were decreasing. So it was time to move on. So Schaefer and his wife, after that, produced... He had a wife? Yes. That's Uh, shocking. Yeah. So produced the Schaefer Mystery Magazine, off and on for some years. And then he switched his, his focus towards finding physical evidence of this prehistoric race. And... It didn't say like there was no, and, and I'm sure there's a biography out there on him, but I didn't find it like where he lived while this was going on. I did know, know that, you know, he was born like in Michigan, but he died in Arkansas and he died in the North Central Arkansas where all the caves are, which is where Joe Ray, his little area is as well. So hmm. I think this is where he ended up, but he he was looking for this physical evidence and he was talking about something called rock books. So he claimed that you, that certain rocks were actually created by ancient beings with embedded legible pictures and text in them. And you just have to decipher them. So he wrote about these rock books. He photographed them. He made paintings of the images he found in them to demonstrate their historical importance. He even created a rock book lending library where he would send a slice of the polished rock out with a detailed description of what was written or the drawings or whatever that he claimed were there (laughs) on them in case you couldn't like make it out. (laughs) 
And, and so that's kind of like, that was the thing that he did later on in life. And then he died like in 75, I believe. His art has been shown. He has obviously influenced many people in sci-fi, many authors, gamers, movies. Let's see. The Shaver mystery was in, influenced believers in paranormal phenomenon. Hold on, let me. I'm trying to make this make sense because it's really hard to make these <laughs> connections. Okay. So there was a connection between the Darrow and UFOs and the appearance of the Darrows and the mythology of the church of the subgenius. Okay. Okay. So apparently this church of subgenius, and I had to look this up is a parody religion <laughs> that satir- satirizes the better known belief systems And it teaches a complex philosophy that focuses on J.R. Bob Dobbs, who purportedly was a salesman in the 1950s. So it's like their Jesus is like a vacuum cleaner salesman in the 1950s. And they liken his image to uh, Ward Cleaver. (laughs) <laughs> like leave it to beaver like the yes. typical 1950s dad this is kind of like who this parody this parody religion but so they make you know references up to the duros obviously all tongue-in-cheek and everything there's also a short story that was written called the elevator people which kind of seems a little bit similar to the lady in paris france mm-hmm. um, with her elevator And in this story, there were reports that there are 500 buildings in the United States whose elevator goes deeper than the basement, which also, what is that? The hive, what is the popular game? Resident Evil. Oh, like the Resident Evil. But anyway, so it says that men in black, like, or something. Right, the men in black. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's all these things that, you know, modern day pop culture references that kind of we can look back and see where some of this comes from or could have been influenced by. All right. So it says like all of these go to the basement and those unfortunate to descend to the caverns emerge nearly catatonic after being treated by the evil cavern inhabitants. In 2004, there's actually a Japanese horror movie called Maribito directed by Takashimi Shimuzu who references Shaver's work and the Duros, Dungeons and Draggers. Um, <laughs> Dungeons and Draggers. Draggers. <laughs> Dungeons, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons and Draggers. Influenced by, you know, a bunch of pop culture, pulp and weird fiction. Have an evil race of subterranean dwarves called Darrow. So, you know, a lot of things reference Shaver's mysteries. But I found Shaver secondary when i was looking up arkansas caves it was like this the second thing i found and i'm gonna try to get through this i know i know my last story was like over an hour long so i'm just gonna try to get through this (laughs) but there's so much to cover (sighs) so much to cover because this is the original story that i found that led me to shaver because i was like the, the title of this and i found this on facebook really and it's called the blowing cave and shaver mystery and of course i had to look up to see what what the hell a shaver mystery was because i knew nothing about this guy but blowing cave is actually a cave in arkansas it's a little bit north of little rock a little bit south of 
the area where Shaver was actually living. But Blowing Caves has always, has always had stories told about it, like something weird going on there. And it's located near Cushman, Arkansas. And this story that was relayed on Facebook here, it was actually on the Blowing Cave Facebook page, was talking about a man named George D. White was said to have found a subterranean civilization and proven the Shaver mystery. He said White in 1950s with a UFO buff from Michigan and he knew Schaefer's claim, you know, he read the books, he read, you know, amazing stories and fantastic fiction. And he believed, you know, the, you know, the remnants of the two advanced races, the Tiro and the Duros, the good and evil, lived in this vast cave. And although White was skeptical of these, you know, he knew about them. He, he was obviously a big UFO nerd in the 50s and hung out with other big UFO nerds in the 50s who also had an interest in cave exploring. So he talked to one of his other UFO buddies, David L. There's no less names. It's <laughs> David L. Who ran a UFO newsletter that Wright contributed to, to go spelunking with three other men down in Arkansas. And one of them are uh, so this, this guy. I don't know if this guy went. They all knew this guy named Charles Marco. And it says, unlike the others, uh, Marco was an obsessive believer in Shaverian concept hmm. to the extent that he occasionally gave public lectures on the subject. <laughs> so they all went down in 1966 as a group of 12 people to Arkansas to explore Blowing Cave on a week-long episode. On their return, members wrote letters to Ray Palmer, who was the editor um, that handled all of Shaver's stuff, that they had encountered intelligent beings, Shaver's Turos, deep inside the cavern. Of course, Palmer never wrote them back. And a few months later, White went back and chose to stay with the under-earth people. <laughs> he returned in 1967 to give a written account to his friend Dave L., who by this time had left the UFO field and no longer wanted to be publicly associated with it. Wright asked this guy, David, to pass on his diary to Marco. Wright felt that in ridiculing his beliefs that he had wronged him and he wanted to prove him, give him the proof of that Shaver was right. So then he returned to his Turo friends and has never been seen since. So Wright went back to the caves, gave his diary to be given to Marco or whatever later on and has never been seen again. David lost track of Marco, didn't you know, it was like 13 years later that he was able, you know, to track him down and he gave him the manuscript. And he said the effect of Marco was electrifying and it set in motion of events that eventually lead to his premature death. So the manuscript basically was saying that the when the group went in there, they spotted a light at the end of the tunnel right notice a narrow crevice just big enough for him to squeeze inside and when he went in there he found artificial steps and you know 
he called to his friends to come through there. They could walk upright. And he says, suddenly they came to this large tunnel corridor about 20 feet wide and just as high. And all the walls on the floor were smooth and the ceiling had a curved dome. And um, they knew it was not like a freak of nature, but it was man-made and that they had stumbled into the secret cavern world. And they encountered these blue-skinned, human-like individuals, and the strangers permitted the crew to, the strangers actually told them that they had permitted them to find the tunnel and entered in because they had instruments to measure people's emotions, and the explorers were determined to have good intentions. <laughs> so they learned that the tunnels went on for hundreds of miles and led to under-earth cities populated by entities that included serpent-like creatures, Sasquatch, hairy bipeds. Oh, wow. Soon after the conversation, Wright and his companions were taken to a kind of elevator that led them to under the earth's place of residence, which was a city made of glass. It turned out that their guides were Noah's direct descendants. Like Noah Oh my the God. Ark. They're just fitting everything. Oh, they're putting in. everything in Every here. possible thing. It's the kitchen sink right here. <laughs> they had found their way underground in the wake of the flood. And that's where they found this super technology and the remains of the advanced civilization along with the Turo. Apparently at some point, Wright's group met the Turos who had been there all along. This is not the only trip that the group took to Blowing Rock. Unable to get anybody on the surface to believe their story, Wright and his friends vowed to return with conclusive proof. During the expedition, they captured like a giant cave moth. They preserved it in a bag. They brought it up. And when it hit sunlight, it disintegrated and turned to find us. That always happens. Yes. Every time. Every single time. So... Wright decided to stay with the under-earth people. All evidence that he ever existed began to mysteriously disappear from the surface. Birth certificates, school records, computer records, bank records, (laughs) fingerprints. His fingerprints disappeared. All all family. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) So apparently all of this disappeared Obviously, it was the work of somebody very influential in a high position that made this happen. Mm. And other members of the group made one other trip to the cave to see their friend for the last time. So all of this was like in this memoir thing that was given to Marco. And let's see, Wright returned once to the service to meet David in 1980. I'm sorry. It's just it's just so much, y'all. It's uh, it's like an epic story. It is an epic story. Oh my God. So Marco saw the manuscript and writes words addressed to him. And he was like, yes, Charles, all that I told you (laughs) is true. I owe you this debt of gratitude because the tour has healed my crippled leg instantly. I'm grateful for more than just that. I've left these notes and somewhere a map for you two to visit these people. Maybe we will meet here someday. And so Marco and his wife, bless her heart, moved to <laughs> Cushman, 1983, to look for his friend. Oh, and Lord. while he, in November, while he was walking around the caves, you know, looking 
for where these people were. He ran into a swarm of bees and they stung him and he had a heart attack and died on the spot. What the fuck? Oh my God. So Marco's death ended the efforts to explore Blowing Cave and the search for the under earthers. And that is my long winded tale (laughs) of mental health and fantastical sci-fi soap opera stories. By that time, how old was Marco? By the boonies. I didn't really say. I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I never knew. Who knew? I had never heard of any of this. Me either. I've I don't, never known. How is it? I, that's one thing that I think really fascinating about all this is the number of people that said like, oh yeah, me too. And I'm like, really? Fucking yeah. really? Yeah. Like, yeah. You too? <laughs> like, yes. Yes. So yes. Conspiracy wow. theorist. Well, I mean, you, you listen to Coast to Coast with me. Yeah. So Marley and I were coming back from Atlanta and I introduced her to Coast to Coast and I was playing one of the episodes and, you know, it started off. Okay. You know, it's always starts off like, okay, I saw a Bigfoot or okay. I think I saw a pterodactyl. The pterodactyl guy. (laughs) And this is, this is where it was going. And so we're like, okay, so you saw a pterodactyl or you thought you saw a pterodactyl and we talked about it and we started talking about prehistoric shit. Maybe it was under earthers or something like that going on. (laughs) grow the duro whatever and so we're like okay okay and then it just took a left turn (laughs) and we were talking about (laughs) the physics of dimensional religion Uh, of mathematical i i can't even i i can't even isotopes i mean (laughs) we we were talking i don't know what we were talking about but it went left so hard so (laughs) wrong that we were just just like we need to call a mental institute for this this oh my god and the host the whole time was just sitting there going Mm-hmm. that's what oh my god i know yeah. yes, yes yes oh yeah even like interjecting mm-hmm. some like oh yeah I oh yeah remember. well you know back in 1947 yeah, yeah you know laying down i'm like oh. holy cow so that's so that's funny the, the kind of vibe still but i mean fantastical or not it it influenced you know sci-fi stories to this day so shaver's mystery now we know and joe ray well done now i have to look up that show (laughs) good job patrice yeah all right let's get some drinks girl yes drink and we're back we're back yay i'm gonna try to not shove this peach cobbler in my face and tell y'all a story too late for me (laughs) but i gave you an extra it's like i brought i brought two for everybody so the reason i brought you cobbler is because i didn't have a story until this morning when i saw those peaches sitting on my counter and i was like let's do a story about peaches (laughs) (laughs) because i've been i I like sat all weekend again it's one of those weekends where i just i was like i'm just not interested in any of these and then this morning i was like fuck it we're talking about peaches so so you're back in Arkansas. I'm back in Georgia. It's like two weeks in a row. We're doing the same state, but yeah, you know, Georgia calls itself the peach state, yep. like peach shaped water towers looming over the highway. Like 
yeah little pink Every ass time, cheeks yeah i always <laughs> think of it was a no i like big butts and i cannot lie <laughs> has that video with the big peach <laughs> that they're dancing on exactly Who is that? Right. Is that we have that, that too <laughs> that? i like big um, butts and i can't oh, who lie. did big butts yeah courtney who did big butts I, I see his face right now. I can see the I video. It. Okay, shit. I'm gonna have to Google it. You know, we yeah. might have to. Uh, we might have to edit this out. I don't think people are gonna forgive the fact that the three of us can't pull this information. Can't remember. Oh I'm calling gosh. Tipsy. <laughs> Bye. Sometime in the middle Sir of the story. A lot. Oh yeah. It's going to be one of those things like we're going to be like 20 minutes in and then we're, somebody's just going to yell out, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Yes. Yes. That's appropriate. Yeah. Peach. And you're right. We have them. We have them here too. We have those little, I see her. Chilton County or Clanton. Chilton County. Yeah. Chilton. And I mean, there's all across the South, little peach asses like peering at us. Water towers. (laughs) But but Georgia decided to be like peachier than everybody else, <laughs> and so I started looking at those. Kind of, I thought I was kind of looking at this like I was looking at the tomatoes, but then I kind of went off on on a, a side stretch. So you can, I started thinking about all the festivals that they have. Like there are peach festivals, peach blossom festivals all over Georgia. You can find them easy. There is the official Georgia Peach Festival in Fort Valley, Georgia that has it's it's like what you would expect it to be you know it's like you know all the bad for us food booths and crafts and kiwanis pancake breakfast and you know exact funnel cakes that parade floats miss georgia peach pageant Mm, um and they do the world's largest peach cobbler every year that like they give free to visitors and it's 11 feet by five feet and about eight inches deep it's, it could go bigger than that. I, I think I it could. Honestly, that's kind of small. It, but it seems that they said it says they use 90 pounds of butter, 150 pounds of sugar, 150 pounds of flour, 32 gallons of the, Actually, 32 gallons of milk isn't that much. But it says they have to prepare it in a specially constructed brick oven that is in the parking lot of the courthouse. And they have to create a baking pan out of the floor panels from school buses donated by, by the bird, uh, the Bluebird Corporation. That reminds um, me, can I have a sidebar? Because mm-hmm. I don't know when I'll ever get to tell this again, unless I've already told this, that I got to see the Alabama <laughs> Centennial Cake when I was in the fourth grade. And mm. it was it was the world's largest cake at the time. And it was on the, in the Guinness Book of World Records. And they had to put it in a warehouse. And it was like 30 feet long. It was shaped like the state. And it was like 30 by like 80 feet or something. That's, that's and I ate a piece of that. <laughs> was it good well i mean the fourth grade i'm sure i thought it was great but who knows it was probably not that good if it was a 32 foot cake i was just thinking how do you how do you keep shit off of a 32 foot cake you know like how do you keep flies and shit off of that cake (laughs) yeah exactly that's it's like it's great to to bake something that large but I will not be eating it. <laughs> no. In Alabama, in the, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't cold. I remember getting to play out on the playground after eating that cake. So it was. That's what I was going to ask you. I was like, were you there on the day that they made it? Or did they just keep that cake available for everybody over the course of the celebration? <laughs> Again, fourth grade, I got to ride the train and wear a conductor hat and eat some cake and go to the playground. 
So it was the best she day ever. She was not <laughs> caring <laughs> about any kind of... There flies on a cake. I don't care. Flies on a cake. Eat the flies too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's my claim to fame. There you go. Well, that puts the world's largest <laughs> cobbler to shame, to be honest. I think they should probably step up their game. But that is that is the whole reason why I brought you cobbler, really. I mean, I did happen to have those five peaches from Sally, but yeah, I was like, oh, I can't not make cobbler now because it sounds amazing. So I started looking into these peach festivals and find out that Fort Valley, Georgia had its first peach blossom festival in 1924. So they've been going on for a long time. And the state, though, had had events like this since 1895. So there was the first peach event that, that we know of was the Peach Carnival which was in Macon, Georgia in 1895 in June. It was a three-week-long event, and railroads did special fares to get people back and forth from it. They had special rates because there were so many people coming into Macon for the Peach Carnival. Wow. There were parades. There were big floats. <laughs> there was So I found this photo, this 1895, of a pageant of like white women in gowns holding branches with flower crowns. And I just immediately got like midsummer PS, PTSD. Oh, like, yes. I was just like, oh, God, no. Yes. Did but somebody eat I, the cobbler with the peeper care in it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, primitive mating rituals of the early South. Yeah. So... So this had like a ridiculous level of fanfare. Oh my God, Midsummer! So, uh, so okay, disturbing. see, I'm lost to this. I didn't finish it. I never finished it after the I don't, I don't, show night. I'm not going you know, to. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know whether to say do it or don't. Patrice is more in favor of it than me. But anyway, we should bring Jeff in on this conversation sometime. I don't think I ever got his his word on Midsummer. So so there's this carnival with Midsummer women and just ridiculous level of fanfare. Baseball, horse racing. The, the news article said 20 handsomely attired knights. <laughs> I don't know. Where did we get knights? Interstate pigeon shoots and massive fruit displays. So what this really was, was an event that was meant to bring awareness of the peach crop as a legitimate Southern agricultural contender. They come South specifically to farm peaches. And it sounds spectacular, except that there were all these broader implications to this story. So there's a little peach that was written by Tom Oakey. Hold on. And he's the person. Hold on. Yeah. Yeah. You just totally like blanked out for like really did 15, that do it to you too 15 seconds so. what was the last thing you heard there Can was hear me now there was a broader implication to this story okay cool <clears throat> let me double check something real quick before i keep on going pause okay make sure it hasn't switched your mics again it hasn't switched my mic again that was more Stop. of a connection error yeah, I think it was a connection error. I just wanted to make sure that that wasn't the reason why it kicks my mic to the wrong one. You know what I mean? Right. So, okay, we're good. Okay, so broader implications. That's where we were. There is a guy named Tom Oakey that wrote a book called The Georgia Peach, and most of my most of my information, one way or another, comes through him. So the the peach tree, like fruit trees, like the peach, they they would grow in the south it wasn't like they were hard to grow but it was hard to grow them so that they could be marketed you know like that's why they sell all these misfit boxes and stuff like this now is like fruit actually in order to be transported across state lines and marketed it has 
to be pretty. It has to be durable. It has to, you know, last mm-hmm. a little while. And that is really, really hard to do with peaches. And so this whole push of Georgia to kind of become the peach center of the country, in, in the words of one of the railroad guys, was designed to eliminate the idea, he said, that the South is too hot for a white man to live and work in. So that's what this carnival was for. The carnival was trying to get people from the North interested in coming down South to farm peaches. And they thought that the South was not a place where white people could really work because it was too hot. So they were trying to like entice Northerners to come down and do it. And the guy said, in time, white agriculturalists will reign in the fields of Georgia. So basically what this was, was, you know, cotton's become kind of a, a dirty crop. It's, it's not working as well as it was. This kind of crop would be too expensive for the average black free man to work on or or to raise themselves so they thought Mm -hmm. and so they they basically were trying to you know they were trying to create a white crop right in in georgia so oki says like the white farmers saw growing peaches as like a european thing you know growing these fruits it was like refined whereas cotton and corn and the things that that a lot of black sharecroppers and freemen now knew how to knew how to farm well they didn't look as refined to people so it was like the way that that like kind of white gentility after the civil war was able to continue looking at themselves as white gentility because they were creating like a new picture of themselves as fruit like fruit farmers right so and in order to like i said in order to do the things that you had to do to get peaches marketable you had to keep up to date like you you had to read agricultural journals you know you had to keep up to date on the latest scientific and agricultural findings and so that meant you had to be literate and you had to have access to this stuff which most black farmers didn't have at this time so when they did this peach carnival in in Macon, it was like a very, very white event. And a lot of the peach festivals and peach blossom festivals across Georgia have always been very, very white events. And they the only place for black people in the original peach carnival in Macon was the watermelon brigade, which was at the beginning of the opening procession of the parade where they had excuse me, 100 little black children balancing watermelons on their heads. And then they get to a park at like at the end of the opening ceremonies and they tie their hands behind their back to do a watermelon eating contest. And then they all sing the watermelon song and which Courtney found out. What did you say you found out the other day about the watermelon song from the book that we were reading? It was Chad talking about it. That the ice cream but, yeah. truck, the, the song that truck. ice cream trucks play just traditionally mm-hmm. is actually a really racist, <laughs> is a really racist old tune called the watermelon song. And that's the song that these kids would sing at the end of this, this carnival parade. So it was, you know, problematic. Well, you 18. This one was 1895. 95 okay and then now the macon macon peach carnival that one only happened that one time like i said it was like a three-week thing and it was trying to kickstart the agriculture but it started off a trend so fort valley georgia which became kind of the heart of the peach growing industry in georgia 
they started their carnivals, I think I said in 1924, and peach blossom festivals. And their festivals had kind of the same goal of kind of building up the peach as like an agricultural standby, you know, something that people recognized and, and wanted to work on. So in 1926, or from 1922 to 1926, Fort Valley brought in 20,000 people a year to their Peach Blossom Festival. And the city only has a 4,000 person population. So that's a pretty huge deal. Wow. Yeah. They even, they, they even lobbied and got themselves re- renamed Peach County. So Fort Valley is in Peach County, Georgia, officially, like, and has been since then. So the Peach Festival, like I said, was sort of a place where white folks celebrated their supremacy over a fruit, I guess. And so I was like, well, then what are the black folks doing all this time? You know, what, what do they have in, in this experience? So the Georgia Peach book that Tom Oakey wrote points out that there is a whole parallel history going on during all of this for black folks in Georgia, for black farmers. So we know we're talking about 18, we've talked 1895 and the 1920s. So we know that Jim Crow is full swing. Mm -hmm. We know after the Civil War, a bunch of black folks from farms and plantations moved to cities because that was the only choice they saw they had, yeah, to, to continue to make money or do anything. They needed jobs, so they moved to cities. So what else are they going to do? Like, they can't, there's no opportunity for education in, right. in the country. And obviously, they can't afford to grow peaches. So in 1895, the same year that the Macon Peach Carnival happened, though, a group of 15 black men and three white men, and, and of the 15, about half were former enslaved people, petitioned a local court in Fort Valley for the creation of a school. And what they created was the Fort Valley High and Industrial School. And it still exists. It's now Fort Valley State University. It's one of the very few colleges in the U.S. that was founded by former slaves. Um, So in Fort Valley, yeah, I was like, I didn't know about this either. This is like the historically black college. So some white folks in Fort Valley support the school when they create it, primarily because they believe that education is going to... I swear to God, this was in the stuff. Dull black people's, quote, brutal instincts if they, are, if they are educated. And mm-hmm. it's pretty broadly advertised that this school is a school where black folks would learn to be better workers in the peach orchards. So, like, education's great, but really they just want to get people to the point where they'll, they'll be better laborers. But the school accomplishes a ton more than those folks expect it to accomplish and as a side note it became kind of a a big thing in the civil rights movement too in the in the 50s and 60s but back when it was started you know right around turn of the century they they locally called it a light in the valley because it was the the place where black folks could achieve and excel completely free of like the white supremacist thinking that they've had to deal with their entire lives and so it was a real like safe it was a real wonderful institution for that community. And there was a man named Otis O'Neill who graduated from this this Fort Valley High and Industrial School in 1908. He graduates 1908. He goes to Tuskegee Institute. He was mentored by George Washington Carver. So, I mean, he's he's up on agricultural science, right? He teaches for a little while. He comes back 
and he becomes in Fort Valley, which is Peach County, and its neighboring county is Houston County. He becomes the Negro County agent for Houston and Peach County. So he's the agricultural agent, I guess, for this area. He has a goal of getting black farmers in the Fort Valley area to stay in the area to be able to make a better living doing agricultural work and so that they can support themselves on their own farms instead of having to go to the city. He wants to see an educated small landowner class of black freemen come up and not just have to live in near starvation, you know, situations, but actually like really have good lives. So while white Fort Valley is building up its peach business, he starts coordinating farmers conferences and doing demonstrations on meat curing because he's been studying and finds out that rural black families tend to have kind of a low protein diet. So he's trying to encourage the cultivation of things that will increase protein in, in their diets. And so he's wanting on, he's wanting to focus on something that will solve that problem and give them like a revenue stream. And so he said at one point, he was quoted as saying, it came to me that I could get all the farmers who had meat to bring it every year to one central place so that those who didn't have could see and be inspired. And, you know, he's saying people have dog shows and horse shows and peach shows and flower shows. So why couldn't they have a ham show? And so he starts the first ham and egg show in Fort Valley, Bacon. Georgia, Bacon in 1916. <laughs> and so while, you know, we're, we're kicking off this peach industry and peach blossom festivals, he's doing the ham and egg show. And it becomes an annual event that gets replicated in other Georgia counties and across other southern states. So the Fort Valley ham and egg show, some accounts say drew thousands of people. The main sponsor was the college because a lot of it was agricultural education, but they brought in speakers from Tuskegee, from other agricultural programs. Uh, they set up in the school gym and it was covered with meat. Like they would have ham shoulders and sides like <laughs> the, hanging from the rafters. Amazing. Oh my God. And they would have like extra tables along the sides that are just like overflowing with like ham. And they would have like the whole stage apron would be covered. They would have these big displays of eggs and they would have competitions for who could, who produced the most eggs this in this amount of time or who, who produced the best hams. So they would offer, offer agricultural education work shops, youth development, they would offer speech contests, and they would have plays, and they would have music, because it became a, a community thing as well, even though it was really focused on that. It was the first time that many African Americans were able to showcase achievements in agriculture, because they weren't, they weren't like, they weren't really welcome in these other places, right. you know, and a lot of the time they couldn't participate. Right. They so, weren't invited um, and they weren't welcome if, even if they did show up. Exactly. And so this, this became popular though on a national scale over time and grew into a week-long event. So in March 1945, there was an AJC article by a writer named Paul Warwick and he describes it. He, he sounds like it, the way he talks about it, he even talks about like that people on their staff like look forward to this every year. It sounds like people at the AJC fight over who can cover this event. And he describes, it's like really fun. It's friendly. It's exciting. There's people singing everywhere. He mentions there are like, so he says, this is one of the quotes from this article, the magic smell 
from 510 magnificent hams, country hams, 171 cured shoulders, 132 smoked sides of bacon, the contribution of 100 Negro farmers from 25 different Peach and Houston County communities. He said it was like a smokehouse to end all smokehouses. He said his photographer was having a hard time like actually doing his job because he kept on just like getting distracted by how great the entire place smelled. And so, you know, they've created this, this separate festival and in 1940, Fort Valley State College starts a new folk music festival that is kind of running in the spring also. The ham and egg is always in February. This one was starting off in April. And it, went, it did okay, but the next year they realized, well, why don't we run it as part of the ham and egg show? Because, you know, that way maybe we can get bigger crowds for both of them. So they set the folk festival for the evening that the ham and egg show ends in, in 1941. And they end up bringing in <clears throat> people, folk musicians on uh, guitar, harp. They use the jug. They use the washboard. They do piano and violin. They have folk tellers. They have storytellers. They have blues singers. And they compete for prizes for, for the best act. But there were... So W.C. Handy, who is the, the father of blues, uh, played at this folk festival other names like edgar clark willie james john work so like this became a a national blues festival that brought acts over time from across the south and the magnet one of the things i read was that the magnitude of the event it says is hard to appreciate because there at that time had never been an example of a black folk music festival that was run entirely by black people so like the, the Folk Music Festival was believed by the Library of Congress to possibly be the first African-American folk festival in the country at all. And it was run 100% by the people making the music. And they covered it in Reader's Digest. They covered it in Life Magazine. They covered it in CBS Radio. And they would split it out over time. They split it into like the religious night and the secular night so they would do blues and folk on the secular night and they would do spirituals and they had sacred harp singers for the religious night too. Um, and it was nationally recognized. It went on until at least 1955. And I think it may have gone on through most of the sixties, but I couldn't, I couldn't confirm that today. WC Handy wrote that the festival presented from year to year, the people who are making a new form of music in their own tradition without the influence of radio and records. So that is what they did instead of goddamn peaches. And the final ham and egg festival. Well, okay. So we know the music festival ended, um, I think probably sometime in the late sixties, the ham and egg festivals kind of went slowly away as the agriculture industry changed. So, you know, like I said, they, they replicated these across the South, but the final ham and egg festival that was still running was in Valdosta, Georgia in Lowndes County. And it was the only one left last year. And this February, February, 2020, they held the very last ham and egg festival oh. in Valdosta. They closed it out this year. But I've got I've got a billion pictures that are super cool that I found today for this. Oh, and there's also a Library of Congress site that specifically covers 
all of like I think it had like 67 mp3s of live recordings they had they didn't have live field recordings of blues artists from the southeast in 1940 this was one of the first places they ever got these recordings in the field from people and they got them here at the ham and egg festival so so they I'll send you this and I think Patrice you're going to really like this, I imagine, but it's a Library of Congress site that lets you just go through all these MP3s of live blues artists playing at this festival. And it's super freaking cool. Oh, wow. So, but yeah, I've got a couple books that I can link you to and bunches of articles. But yeah, I was like, damn, Han and Egg Show. I was like, what the hell is that? I never heard of this. But yeah, they had, and I have, I did download an MP3 that I really liked. I don't know whether we'll be able to play it after the show or not, but it's awesome. So listen to it. That is so cool. I, who, who knew? Because again, Mm -hmm. they don't teach you this stuff in school. Nope. And that is fucking amazing. Cool stuff. That is so good. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, I go. that's us yes thank y'all for listening thank you for listening on to the after show yes we'll talk to y'all soon bye Bye, guys bye